Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. Uh, to help support the making of this podcast, please sign up to my new Patreon site. For a small fee, you can show your support and you'll get exclusive access to new videos every week. Vodcasts, as they call them, which are packed with history, current affairs and uh, and everything else I can think of. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon and I'd love to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. In this podcast, we're prowling the Irish coast with Barbary Corsairs, shadowing a notorious Dutch pirate known as Captain Murat. He operated out of Morocco with the blessing of the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul, raiding as far north as Iceland in search of men, women and children to be sold as slaves. On a dark night in 1631, he sailed into the whirlpool of violent local feuds and enmity between Elizabeth I and Philip, King of Spain. Coming ashore with his pirates to leave an indelible mark of great pain and suffering. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we walked side by side with William Shakespeare as he conjured magical prose and poetry in Elizabethan and Jacobean London. Where are we now? Well, we're, uh, we're definitely leaving behind the beautiful language of the bard to come face to face with the brutal violence of the Barbary Corsairs. One fateful night, here in Ireland, they left a dark shadow of violence and slavery over a whole town. We're in Baltimore, in County Cork, and the place is Dunashad Castle. The location for the love letter this week is uh, Dunashad Castle, which is in County Cork, right down in the southwest corner of the island of Ireland. Baltimore is a place name that's actually a corruption of, of Irish Gaelic. It means the town of the big house. And the big house in question is Dunashad Castle. So Dunashad Castle was built in 1215 as near as anyone can tell. That's the same year that King John put his seal on Magna Carta 
on Runnymede Green by the Thames. Just to sort of give you a sense of the time that that construction work got underway, it's a typically Norman castle, a big grey block of a thing, dark, quite gloomy. Its owner, he had adopted Irish ways by the time the thing was built. He was called McSlane or Slaney, which is the Irish Gaelic form of the English name Fitzstephen. And he was descended, this guy who built Dunashad Castle, from Robert Fitzstephen, better known as Strongbow, after whom the cider is named, <laughs> incidentally. Uh, and Strongbow was the legend. Was it really? Yeah. Yeah, Strongbow was the legendary figure, a legend of history, a real person, a Norman Welsh lord called Richard de Clare, but his nickname was Strongbow. He was the second Earl of Pembroke, and he led the Norman conquest of Ireland. So the builder of Dunashad Castle was a descendant of Strongbow, and in the intervening years, you know, the family had become more Irish, but their power derived from the fact that they were descended from Strongbow. Slaney and his family were in control of Finishad Castle until 1261, which was the year of the Battle of Callan, and they were battered black and blue and driven off by their great rivals, who were the O'Driscoll clan. And the O'Driscolls had, had lost out in the same conquest that had given Islaney and the, and the Fitzstevens their power. So it was a, a sort of a revenge fest. But this is how Dunashad Castle came to be built. Even with modern Baltimore around it, the great grey-black block of the Norman castle is still the most dominant, prominent structure. When you look at the bay, say from the water, when you know, when you look back onto land from a ship, it is the castle at Dunashad that you see. So there it sits, this gloomy structure. But what we're really coming to, and what I'll get to, is a spectacularly dreadful night on the 20th of June, 1631. And when you hear about what it was that happened that night, I'm sure you'll agree that it's remarkable that there's anything in Baltimore at all that it wasn't just wiped off the map at that point. So the place was, you know, established by Strongbow's descendants. Uh, then the O'Driscolls took control of it after the Battle of Callan in 1261. And they, for the next four centuries, the O'Driscolls had control. So through the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, into the 1600s, it was O'Driscolls. And the O'Driscolls, they're like a clan, are they? Yeah, they're just another Irish family. And like so much of Britain, Scotland in particular, was, was made up of rival clans, rival families, sometimes allied with one another, sometimes each other's throats. You know, so as it was in Scotland, so it was in Ireland, possibly even more so. These were tempestuous centuries of different powerful families vying for taking and losing control. Turf wars <laughs> on a global scale, as the song says. So the O'Driscolls, having taken control in the 13th century, they held on to it for about 400 years. Uh, they were rich, and they had all sorts of holdings, land holdings in the area. But at the end of the 1600s, they made a mistake, a crucial mistake. At the time of the Spanish Armada, they backed the wrong side. Now, we've, we've talked about the Spanish Armada a couple of times in relation to you know the Giant's Causeway and other stories. That was 1588, when Catholic 
Spain tried to get Protestant Elizabeth off of the English throne and replace it with someone more to their liking. Now, at the time of the Spanish Armada, uh, the O'Driscolls backed Spain. The Catholic O'Driscolls backed the, the Catholic move against England. And of course, the, the events of the Spanish Armada unfolded. And when the Spanish Armada failed, Philip, King Philip of Spain, continued to try and make trouble for Elizabeth. And one of the things that he did next was to try and get the rebellious Irish Catholics to rise up in rebellion against Englishness. And it culminated in a dreadful battle at Kinsale in 1601. So you've got the Spanish Armada 1588, and then in 1601, the Battle of Kinsale. And there, Finnean O'Driscoll, who was the leader of the clan, had allowed the Spanish to make his castle at Dunashad a, a base. He'd allowed the Spaniards to have a sort of a foothold there. Uh, and in the aftermath of the battle, which was a disaster for the Spanish and the Irish, it was surrendered to the English as spoils of war. So there's Dunashad Castle now falls into English hands. This is one of those stories that has all the twists and turns and complexities that you wonder why it hasn't been a movie, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster. Fenino Driscoll, although he backed Catholic Philip, he had been a personal friend of Queen Elizabeth. And in the disastrous aftermath of the Battle of Kinsale, he managed to wheedle his way out of trouble. So he got himself a, a royal pardon. But really just for himself, there was all kinds of trouble for all the rest of the Driscolls that had been party to the rebellion. But Fenin himself was relatively all right. And at that point, he joined forces. He signed up with, a, with an Englishman called Thomas Crook. And they began to establish an English colony on some of the O'Driscoll ancestral lands. And this gave rise to the settlement that becomes Baltimore, the town of the big house. And it was part of the colonisation of Ireland which was an attempt by the English to deal with the obstreperous Irish Catholics once and for all by replacing them, bundling them out of the way and replacing them on the land with people loyal to the English crown, preferably Protestants. It was te technically called the Plantation of Ireland and it was begun by Henry VIII, continued by his daughter Elizabeth I and then James VI and I, the Scottish king, he continued with the same, the Plantation of Ireland. So that's the background, that long and complicated background to what happened on that fateful date that I mentioned earlier, which is to say the night of 20th of June, 1631. And by that time, Baltimore was, depending on your point of view, was an isolated English enclave surrounded by a Catholic population that didn't want them there. They were like a cuckoo in the nest forcibly set in place as part of the plantation, but surrounded high and low and on all sides by people that would rather they weren't there, which meant that they were in a fairly vulnerable position. To say the least, they were surrounded by people that wanted rid of them. And what that effectively does for us is uh, it gives us a glimpse of a scourge that most people do not associate with our part of the world, which is to say slavery. And on that night, in June 1631, prowling offshore by prior arrangement was a ship or possibly a flotilla of ships 
led by a renegade Dutchman. <laughs> a renegade Dutchman, who was called, he had been called Jan Janzoon van Harlem, but 13 years before that night, he had turned Turk, as they said in those days. He had converted to Islam. And he had become Murat Reis, which is to say Captain Murat. And he operated out of Morocco in North Africa with the blessing of the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul. And he was, like many, he was running pirate ships and he was specifically involved in slavery. In 1627, he had led two raids to Iceland and had taken 400 men, women and children and sold them as slaves. So it was the time, this, this time, this, this period of history was tyrannised by the Barbary Corsairs and the Barbary Corsairs were Muslim Arab pirates operating out of North Africa and they made countless raids on uh, usually isolated settlements on the European coast. And for 300 years, maybe more, between the 16th and the 19th centuries, Barbary Corsairs took as many as one and a quarter million whites to sell them as slaves in the slave markets of Algiers and Tunis and Tripoli. Now, slavery is something that everyone in our part of the world, as soon as you say the word, people think of the Atlantic slave trade involving black African people you know, being taken across the Atlantic and sold and worked as slaves in the plantations in Central and North America. But it's worth being reminded that slavery is as old, probably, as the species Homo sapiens. And during the thousands of years, everybody has been a victim of it. Everybody has been a victim of slavery at some time or another. And so in the case of Baltimore, there's this little isolated village, part of these plantation settlers. They are displacing the Catholic Irish locals. And it would appear that they had fallen foul of a plot against them by some of their Catholic neighbours. After the battle at Kinsale, although Finine O'Driscoll did all right out of it on account of his personal relationship with Queen Elizabeth, the rest of the clan mostly had to run for it. Most of them had gone to Spain and it's generally suspected that those dispossessed O'Driscolls had been looking for an opportunity to get rid of the English. You know, if they could get rid of the English, they could come back in and retake what had previously been ancestral lands. So in any event, the suspicion is that they were in league with Murat Reis, this renegade Dutchman, uh, who, you know, who, who had converted to Islam. And they arranged for him to come in with his ships. And on that night in June 1631, the boats came into the darkness and they took the entire population of Baltimore. Men, women and children. Numbers are hard to come by for, you know, for obvious reasons. But let's say 100, 150 of these villagers. And the, to make the trip worth their while, it's also believed that maybe as many again of the local Irish were taken too. So maybe 200, 300 people were just rounded up in the dark and loaded aboard these ships of these Barbary Corsairs and taken away. Three of them, just three, were able to organise ransom payments so their relatives were able to raise money and buy them back before the ships departed. But the rest were taken 
and sold into lives unimaginable, probably in Tunis or Algiers. The men who were taken, they probably lived out their lives as galley slaves. They would have been chained to oars aboard ships, plying around the Mediterranean for trade or for war. The women would have been sold as wives, as concubines. The children would have been raised as Muslims and then sold into servitude. Unimaginable lives, but it was the fate during those centuries for well over a million A million and a quarter, a million and a half white European Christians were sold into the slave trade at that time. It's so much a horror. Slavery is so much a horror that's dominated in everyone's minds by what happened to maybe 12 million black Africans who were taken across the Atlantic and and sold and and worked in the plantations in in North America. But the reality is slavery has been a stain on on the whole of humanity and every race, every creed, people of every colour have suffered it. And it's worth remembering when you go to somewhere like Baltimore in the southwest of Ireland that people there were victims of the same horror story. And it seems so out of context. You know, I've spent a lot of time in County Cork and it's this lovely soft green landscape, this gently rolling landscape. It rains a lot in the southwest of Ireland. The locals talk about the weather being soft, but it's made it this green, soft, lush landscape and to contemplate that in a little village like Baltimore hundreds of people being swept aboard Arab pirate ships and taken off never to return taken off to live out their lives and to die as slaves you know seems almost incomprehensible strangely enough up on the high ground up on the cliffs overlooking the sea there's a a tall white landmark It's like a a tall white pillar and it's known locally as Lot's Wife and it was installed, it was built at the end of the 18th century as a a marker, as a warning for ships. Something like a lighthouse, but but not as effective, but, but something by which ships could navigate in that area. It's a reference to the biblical story. Lot's wife was turned from a human being into a pillar of salt because against God's instructions, she turned and looked back at her homeland. When Lot was leaving from the devastation of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were told not to look back, but Lot's wife did look back, and so she was turned into a pillar of salt. And I've often thought about the people that were that were never going to see their homes again uh, on account of being taken away slaves. They wouldn't even have had, in all likelihood, the opportunity, it happening in the darkness of that night, they wouldn't even have had the opportunity to take that look back over their shoulders at their homelands before they were flung into the holds of the ships and carried off into lives unimaginable. It must have been a rich, profitable trade. Well, yes. um, Buying and selling human beings is always always high value, depending on on the strength of the human bodies involved, the likelihood that you could get a lot of work out of them, they would change hands for a lot of money. Children, you're going to get a lifetime out of children if you can get them young. You're selling people to live out the next 10, 20, 30 years, however long they might live as slaves. So yes, always a lucrative trade. And in this instance, the Barbary Corsairs, they operated out of North Africa, coming out into the Atlantic, and then prowling Spanish coast, the French coast, the south coast of England, up into the north, I mean, as far north as Scandinavia. They were up there just taking opportunities to raid into places like Iceland, just plucking people from isolated homesteads and 
taking them back and, and selling them into slavery. The Atlantic slave trade in black Africans, obviously it outnumbered the trade by the Barbary Corsairs probably by as much as 12 to 1. It was much larger, much more almost industrialised, you might say. But the fact is that for century upon century, millennia after millennia, people were bought and sold. It's just one of the undeniable stains on our species. Everyone's done it. Everyone's experienced it. People take the opportunity to enslave and others who are on the losing end of battles or the losing ends of wars and conquest and colonisation, they in their turn are taken as slaves. The experience of slavery is something that has been known and experienced by every kind of humankind. Slavery is such profound evil. It's always a shock when you find it cropping up throughout history, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh -huh. it, it seems out of time in a way. But the fact is that at the time when British ships were taking African slaves, that Barbary Corsair version of slavery had been operating out of Africa before. They were operating in their own way in Africa before the Europeans got involved. And all through the time of the European Atlantic slave trade, it was still going on. It was just a facet, a fact of life. The British dipped into it in the 1700s and the 1800s, but the, the slave was eternal. The slave had always been going. It predated our involvement and it continued after. It's just the way people are, all people. It's so out of context. Anyone who is familiar with you know, the southwest of Ireland, it's such a, it feels quite remote. The coastline is, is often rugged and there are all sorts of beautiful, picturesque bays where, on the one hand, you can imagine them being hiding places for smuggling and pirates and all the rest of it. That romantic idea about smuggling and, and so on. But it's hard to imagine. It's just hard, if not impossible, to imagine that for people there was a threat that out of the darkness would come foreign ships. It didn't just happen at Baltimore. People were taken from all around the European coastline year after year, century after century. It may be a conservative estimate, but we're talking about millions of people taken from Europe and sold into slavery, never to be seen again. And It seems like the stuff of fiction. It seems like the stuff of fictional movies and fictional novels, but the fact is it happened, and on a vast scale. fascinating how this event gives you a window into the deep, complex and vibrant history of Ireland. Yes, the back, the back story to, to the castle at Dunashad was built in 1215 and it's built by Norman conquerors. And for people of your generation, my generation, you know, we think so much in terms of the troubles. Your thinking of Ireland is dominated by that and the period since the peace that was established and that, and that has held sway up into the present day. But the history of Ireland is fascinating, blood-soaked, convoluted, and it has this background of the native clans of Ireland being at one another's throats. And then by the time of the Norman Conquest and later, you've got this English involvement and England seeks to dominate. And because of the religious element, because it's Protestant England by that time, Henry VIII, Elizabeth, then James VI and first, 
And for Protestant monarchs, the, the Catholicism of Ireland is a problem. And this project, the plantation project, driving the Irish locals out and replacing them with with English Protestants loyal to the English throne, it, it was such a audacious plan in social engineering to try and replace one population with another just so that you can exert your will and seek to profit from control of the land and control of the resources. But it is that element, because our awareness of Ireland is so overshadowed by what we saw in our television screens in the 1970s, that you easily lose track of the endless complexities that unfolded for century after century before. A resounding clash of religious faiths Austerity standing firm in the face of a new brand of worship. Presbyterian Scots in no mood to listen to new ideas, not even from a king. Unrest and rebellion spread. The Covenanters refusing to be brought to heel, ready to face death for their faith. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, and please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.